0: So as I get up here this morning, uh, to preach, I have a, uh, have to say I have a newfound respect for Joey. Um, because this morning, I, I'm experiencing for the first time something that Joey goes through every single week. And that's having your in-laws right here, ready to just grill you as soon as this is done. Joey does this week in and week out. The Vex sit right here every week. And I have my in-laws here in town, they're just few, few rows back, but I even have the grandmother-in-law. So you just multiply that with the grandmother-in-law, but uh, I have a newfound respect for Joey and what he goes through week in, week out. This week we're, uh, we're continuing on in our sermon series, The Storyteller, and we're walking through uh, really God's grand story of redemption. And how God has this master plan throughout all of history to redeem his people. And we're talking about, we, you know, each week we're talking about different aspects of this story, this, this grand story. And in doing so, also looking at how our story fits into that. Well, this week we want to look at the church. We want to look at what is the church and try to do our best to maybe answer that question. You know, we live in, historically speaking, we live in the church age. We live in this time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. What many scholars call the church age. This time when Christ, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little later, but he has entrusted his, his mission to us, the church. And so this morning we're going to look at that and try to, um, Answered this question about what is the church. So, <laughs> Joey wanted me. For, uh, he actually gave me a heads up on that. Wanted me to assure, especially any new parents, that the kids are all right. That was that was a planned thing. So your kids aren't being tortured in the back room or anything like that. That's not how we roll around here. Um, but we're looking at what is the church. And instead of uh, maybe talking about that in, in, in huge terms, because we could have a, an entirely different sermon series just on this idea. We could go for weeks on this. I thought instead of talking about it in, in, in huge, grandiose terms, that it, it would be beneficial for us to look at a specific passage and really anchor ourselves there. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Hebrews 10, uh, verses 19 through 25. And so in looking at that, I think that what we're going to find there can be summarized by saying this, that because of what Christ has done, the church should be full of faith, hope, and love. I'm gonna say that again. That's sort of our, our overarching idea this morning. Because of what Christ has done, <laughs> the church should be full of faith, hope, and love. So let's look at, at the passage together. Again, this is Hebrews 10, 19-25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as we get into this passage, it's I, I think good just to do a really, really, really quick uh, summary of the book of Hebrews um, because it definitely uh, factors into what we're talking about here. And again, a very brief summary of the book of Hebrews is that it's really the writer who we don't fully know who the writer of Hebrews is, uh, the scholars go back and forth about who that might be, but the writer is arguing over and over and over again to compare Christ as the mediator of a new covenant to the old covenant. And so what he's saying over and over, if you look at the book as a whole, is that Christ being the mediator of this new covenant is completely supreme to the Old Covenant. That what he has done is completely supreme and sufficient in comparison to the Old Covenant. He's obviously addressing mostly a, a, a Jewish audience, and so he can write about that because they know exactly what the Old Covenant was all about. And what Christ has done is completely supreme to all of that. So as we look at the passage this morning and we get into verses 19 through 25, I think it's helpful to break it down uh, into a couple of sections. So first of all, the first three verses, I think, is the first section, if you want to look at it that way. In verse 19 through 21, uh, go together, and then 22 through 25. <clears throat> and a good way to look at this is, is to see in it a technique of writing uh, that, Paul actually uses a lot in his writing. So we, again, don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews. Some would maybe argue that he did, but nobody knows for sure. But Paul, in his writings, would use this technique over and over where he would write uh, in such a way as to proclaim uh, what is called in the Greek the indicative. So uh, in the Greek language, there are verbal tenses just like we have in our own language. And the indicative tense is the present tense. Now, as I get into this Greek, I want you to know I'm not going to go too far with this. Uh, I did go to seminary and I learned Greek a little bit, but I forgot most of it. So I'll only go as far as I can with this. But the indicative tense is the present tense. And then uh, the imperative tense is sort of the the, the tense of instruction, the tense of command. And so what Paul would do uh, so often in his writings, for the most part, most of his writings, He would declare the indicative, what the people were to begin with. And for the most part, what he was saying is you are this. This is your new identity because of what God has done. This is your new identity in Christ. And the first, say, half of his letters would be that. You can look back at all of his letters and see this. And then the second half would be the imperative, would be because this is who you are, this is your new identity. Now, this is what you should do. This is what you uh, should become. And we see that here. So verses 19 through 21 is sort of the indicative, and then 22 through 25 is sort of the imperative. So we're going to see once again that because of what Christ has done and what the church is, the church should be full of faith, hope, and love. So what has Christ accomplished? What has Christ done? What is the writer here saying that Christ has done? Well, in verse 19, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Think about this again in comparison to the old covenant. What did the old covenant look like? What did people have to do to interact with God? They had to enter in, a priest had to enter into the Holy of Holies. That's where God's presence lived. And, and because of God's holiness and because of God and being who he is, that chief priest could only go in once a year through a curtain to be in with God. But what the writer here is saying is that Christ has broken that down and Christ is now our access to God. He says in verse 20, He compares the curtain to Christ's flesh. So Christ is now our access point to God. We no longer need to go through a curtain. We no longer need to be in an, an area known as the Holy of Holies. We can interact with God through Christ. Not only that, but in verse 21, he's called our great priest. And so we no longer need human intervention for us to interact with God. We can now access God directly through Christ. He serves as our great, as our great priest. He sits on, on his throne at the right hand of God, pleading our case before God. This is all to show us what Christ has accomplished for us The church. And I think before we get into, uh, sort of the second, um, aspect of this and looking at what the church should be, I think it's helpful to ask the question, what is the church? I mean, think about that. I don't know if you spend a lot of time walking around asking yourself that question, but when I started to prepare for this, I thought, man, that's, you know, sort of an interesting, interesting question. So when you hear, what is the church? What do you think about? Do you think about Nazareth Academy? Do you think about home groups? Maybe you think about Joey up here ranting about dudes being dudes in our society and how that needs to happen all the time. He somehow finds a way to incorporate that into every message, by the way. But there, there's a lot of truth. I agree completely with him, but I just love, I just want to pick on him a little bit there. But what do you think about when I say, what is the church? Well, this morning, we're talking about Big C Church. We're not talking about church on 27 Quartus Street. We're talking about church, Big C Church, universal church. What is it? Well, simply put, the church is the fellowshipping community of Jesus' followers. We are a group, we are a community of Jesus' followers. Look at this passage. Nowhere in this passage does the writer use the singular tense. He's constantly writing in plural tense. He's writing to people as the church. The church is a community. It's a, it's a group of people together together doing life together. That's why we do home groups. That's why we believe in sharing life together. The church is a community of Jesus' followers. Secondly, the church is the one and only institution that, that Christ Himself chose to carry out His mission. I said this a little bit on the front end, but Christ has actually chosen to carry out his mission through the church. Think about that. He was here on earth, and he's no longer here on earth, but he sort of delegated his mission to his disciples that then funneled to the church. Isn't that amazing that the God of, of, of the universe that has this amazing story, that has this grand plan of redemption, of restoring all things and restoring specifically His people would entrust that mission to His church. And we're the only institution that that could be set up. He didn't choose government. He didn't choose other nonprofit organizations. He chose the church to accomplish His purposes. Finally, the church is regularly seen as the bride of Christ in Scripture. Think about that. That Jesus not only entrusted his mission to the church, but he wed himself to the church. He united himself to the church in the way that a man unites himself to his wife. You think Jesus is ever going to divorce his wife? You think... Jesus would ever walk away from his wife. He has he is, he is united himself to the church regardless of how faithful or unfaithful we might be. Jesus loves the church as a man loves his bride. When Jessica and I uh, first started dating, we were a little crazy, um, I'll be honest. We were, uh, we sort of started dating and, and pretty early on we, we kind of knew this was it. Like we, you know, we were sort of in that season of life where, like, we could get married and we sort of early on felt that, that sense that we were, you know, this is it. Like, you're the one that I'm supposed to marry. And so, uh, in all of my, um, courage and really stupidity, um, I, I went to Jeff about a month and a half after Jessica and I had started dating and asked him if I could marry his daughter. Up to this point, I think Jeff and I had spent maybe three hours together, um, given the distance of him living in Dallas, me living in Boston. So you can understand when Jeff said no. I, <laughs> no, I don't. why would you ask me such a thing? So I took it in stride, and I was like, okay, you know, I, that's, I guess, all right. I understand where you're coming from, I guess. So I gave him a month, and I called back. I said, Jeff, you know, it's Joffrey again, and uh want to talk to you a little bit. Asked him again if I could marry his daughter. And he said, Jeff, Joffrey, first of all, who gave you my phone number? <laughs> and secondly, no. Um, I, you know, no disrespect, but I cannot say yes to this. I don't know you can't say yes. So again, you know, I'm, I'm all right with that. i you know, no disrespect. I understand where you're coming from. Give them another month. Call back again, Jeff, it's me, uh, Joffrey. I, I don't know how to tell you this again. Melanie at this point was involved, you know, in unison, they said, Joffrey, we just can't say yes. We, you know. No 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 disrespect. But at this point I'm 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 like, come on, Jeff, you gotta help me out here. I want to marry your daughter, she wants to marry me, and and, and and we're gonna do this thing. You know, he said, you know, we, we can't bless it, we don't know you enough. But you guys are adults and you, you gotta do what you gotta do. And so we got married. So me being all of five five, hundred and fifty pounds, dripping wet on a good day, to stand up to a six-foot-four bear of a man that is Jeff Judy all for the love that I had for his daughter, knowing that she was the woman that I would spend the rest of my life with. Take that and compare it to what Jesus must feel for His own bride. And that's, that's what we have as the church. We have the affections of Jesus Christ himself. So this is all the indicative of the passage. This is all who we are as a church, first of all, because of what Christ has done. And it's only because of what Christ has done. But the rest of this passage, beginning in verse 22 through 25, then begins to tell us what the church should be. And so I said this on the front end, but we have three distinctives in this passage about the church, faith, hope, and love. So let's actually sort of flip back and, and, and read the passage, read just those last three uh, or for four verses uh, to pick up on this, this idea of the church being full of faith, hope, and love. Says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So first of all, we are to be a people of faith. We are to live in faith. We are to be a people that operate under faith. We're a community of people that believe in a God that lived here on earth for a certain period of time but he's now no longer physically here and yet we would say that he is completely alive as much as he ever was when he was here on earth we're a people that operate in faith and we should we should have faith in who our god is but what is faith well, luckily, it's defined just in the very next chapter for us in Hebrews. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, like I said, we, we constantly operate under faith as a church. And we can't let sometimes the, the lies of our culture that say you can only believe in what you can see, you can o- only believe and what you can measure can allow that to 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 sort of uh, bring down our faith and, and 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 destroy our faith. We are ultimately a people of faith. Now, instead of just talking about this sort of in the abstract and saying, "Be people of faith," go. Uh, I, I I thought about this for my own life. Like, what what does it look like for me? to live by faith at times. You know, when I was uh, six, seven years ago, I was considering the move here to Massachusetts from Oklahoma, where I'm originally from. I had, at the time, I had some of the best relationships and community I've ever had in my life. I had three guys that I met with weekly. Uh, we called it Life Group. We smoked stogies. We talked about life. And we had done this uh, up until that point for three or four years, literally weekly, uh, pretty faithfully. And so in thinking about this move to Massachusetts, I, I quickly came to the realization I'm walking away from that. I'm walking away from how rich and how healthy that is for me to have these three guys that we share all of life with. We had accountability. We had all of it. We talked about everything. We, we challenged each other. We did it all and and I was walking away from that. But I knew at the same time that God was calling me to move and, and and to sort of move into this next season of life and to come up and to go to seminary. And so in thinking about that, I, I felt like God was saying, you need to trust me. This is where you need to have faith that I am who I am and that I'm going to provide for you. And so I obviously went through with it and I made the move and literally The day that I moved into my apartment here in Massachusetts, I met two guys, Tim and Kevin, that it's almost like we just picked up where we, you know, where I had left off with the other guys. We met weekly and had accountability and amazing relationships. And I know these, these two guys, Tim and Kevin, are great friends of mine to this day, six years later. And so God was telling me, have faith in me. And He proved Himself faithful. I don't know what it looks like for you. We all have our own uh, sort of worlds that we live in. But what does it look like for you to be a person of faith? To live by faith. To not live by what you can see, what you can measure, but to live uh, on, on faith in our God and who He has promised to be. As we move through the passage, we see hope. We see that we are... To be a people of hope, it says, "Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess." But in our world today, isn't it? It's really hard to maintain hope. I, you know, in 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 thinking about this, reflecting on this, I feel like in if we if we allow ourselves to be um, honest about it, it's it's hard a lot of times to maintain hope. Without the gospel. I mean, look, just turn on CNN for like an hour. Watch that. And then tell me how you feel in terms of hope. In terms of what this world offers to help you with hope. To give you hope. But what do we as people of faith hope in? We hope hope in eternity. We hope in what Christ has promised us, that as we have faith and as we believe in what He has done on our behalf, we then have hope. We can believe that as we have faith, we will have eternity with Him. That's something that people that don't believe in the gospel don't have. We have hope because of what Christ has done. And it follows, the writer here follows up sort of with an encouragement to us to have hope because the one who promised is faithful. Jesus who promises us an eternal life that we wouldn't experience death, spiritual death, that we can have hope in Him. And so we believe in that because He is faithful. So as we move on to the third distinctive, I think it's maybe good to think of it in this way, to sort of see this as a progression, this, this faith, hope, and love, sort of as a progression into this final one being love. So as we are people of faith, as we believe in the gospel, as we declare that what Christ has done on the cross, in dying and and, and, raising, and and rising from the dead and ascending into heaven, that as we have faith in that, we can then have hope, we can have hope that we would experience a similar resurrection, and then that finally, that out of that, the overflow of that, that we would be a people of love, that we would be a people of love. Paul writes about these three distinctives as well in his writings. In 1 Corinthians 13, he writes uh, pretty prolifically about love. And at the very end of that, he says this. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And he writes uh, on and on about how important it is that we have love, that we are a people that love others, that love our community, that love the people that we are doing life with. I would even go so far as to argue that our love as believers should be inward first. Should We, we should love those that we are in community with first. That we should pour our efforts there first. And that secondly, we should pour our love and our efforts outward. So I'm not at all arguing that we turn it in and we become a frozen chosen and we do that thing. But I would say that we need to, to, to recognize our love for each other should be extremely important to us. And that as a result of what Christ has done, that love would pour out of our hearts for each other, and then for others. Jesus tells his disciples this in John 13. He says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So that's how important love as a distinctive, and especially as a church, is. Christ is saying that that should be a mark of who you are people should be able to identify you as a follower of me because you love others. This is who we are to be. That we, the church, are to be full of love for each other and for others. And ultimately, we are to be a people of faith, hope, and love. A professor that I had at seminary wrote a book actually about this idea of, of just the life of faith. He incorporated these distinctives of faith, hope, and love throughout the book. And toward the very end of his book, he, he writes this. I think it's an, a, a great quote to sort of summarize uh, what I've said here. It says, Finally then, if our salvation is all the work of God on our behalf, It follows that our lives as Christians will be marked by praise and thanksgiving to God for what He has done, is doing, and will do in our lives. Right here, he puts it really well. In short, the goal of theology, which is encountering God, is doxology, praising God in word and deed. So it starts with what Christ has done for us that because of what Christ has done what he accomplished on the Christ uh, on the cross and that the gospel is true that we the church should respond in faith, hope and love can I pray that for us this morning